Conan, what is best in life? To crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentation of your women. That is good. That is good. A warrior seeks revenge on the cult leader who killed his parents. Special guest Clinton Festa joins us to discuss the stupidest catchphrase ever, Conan's protein intake, and the time that Arnold Schwarzenegger probably punched a camel. Then we find out if Conan the Barbarian stands the test of time. It's the test of time, James and Alan have their say. Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the glut. Alan says as a father, blah, blah. It's the test of time, James and Alan have their say. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special episode of The Test of Time. I am here with my buddy, James Brief. How you doing, James? I'm good as always, and I'm always excited when we have a guest, and I'm even more excited when it's a guest for the first time. Yeah, today's guest is my buddy, Clinton Festa. Clint, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It is great to be here. Yes, 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 yes. I'm really, really glad that you're here. Clint, you and I go back from college, freshman year in college, 1997. Yes, we lived together. I think we're we're a rare case of people who lived together all four years of college. Yes. Some people can say three years, but not many people will get randomly paired up with the person that they're happy to live with for the remainder of college. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I remember meeting you that first day freshman year, and you were looking through my CD collection. You know, this was 1997. And you were like, man, you have a lot of Weird Al CDs. And the second you said that, I was like, oh, and now he thinks I'm a weirdo and a loser (laughs) and he hates me. But instead you were like, that's awesome. And I was like, we're going to be okay. I knew it. I knew. <laughs> I said, there's so many albums that I don't have here. Because I, I, you had, I think, discography up to that point yes. probably and still do. Yes. I had a handful of albums and maybe even a cassette that was probably not brought to college. <laughs> but, but then I was like, this is awesome. I'm going to hear another one rides the bus whenever I want. <laughs> right. Wait a right. second. You guys didn't get each other's email addresses or like AOL addresses? We did talk. At the time I was doing a summer, like a homespun intramural basketball league with some local friends. And there was this guy uh, named Al in our group and he was on my team. I was calling him, trying to get a hold of him, telling him where the next game was. And then Al calls me, Al Noah, and he says, hi, this is Al. And I probably didn't stop talking for 45 seconds because I was trying to get a hold of the other Al. <laughs> okay, our game is going to be on Tuesday. We're going to meet down at Lakewood Park. And please make sure you're on time. Blah, 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 blah. So Al politely let me, Al Noah politely let me finish all of that. And he says, I don't think I understand what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm your college roommate. <laughs> and then I think the next question was like, are you okay if I bring a TV? I'm like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Yes, that all sounds familiar. I remember that being like, what's happening? Uh, We got along when we chatted, but then once we met, everything was great. And one of your friends from high school, Clint, was on the show last year. Brett Sills joined us to talk about hackers. And 
from there we were talking and you were like, can I come on too? I was like, of course you can, obviously. (laughs) So today we're going to talk about Conan the Barbarian. But before we get into that, I want to ask you, Clint, about the work that you do with the theater uh, by you in your town. So you've become like a playwright. Yeah, it's weird to say that, but um, it is true. (laughs) I was not anybody who was you know, doing theater in high school. I was not, I'm not an actor. I'm not a dancer. I'm not a singer. <laughs> but Al, you can take, I think, a lot of credit for this. You introduced me to the Cornell Lunatic. And right. then I said, well, you know, I can't really write, but I could probably draw. And I looked at clip art from 1997, 1998 was pathetic. And I thought, okay, these guys need somebody who can at least draw Garfield or Donald Duck or something. Right. So I auditioned, applied, whatever the word is, as a uh, cartoonist. But I didn't really like people weren't asking me to draw stuff because they didn't really know me until like junior or senior year. So I realized if I'm going to get my stuff in the magazine, I need to write. So that's kind of where I started writing. And it was comedy. So then I discovered this opportunity locally. We have a really good playwrights forum, the Greensboro Playwrights Forum, uh, only about four or five years ago. And I joined. And here's an opportunity where you can actually write a 10 minute play, submit it. It might get produced like your idea could find a spot on the stage. You know, there have been moments where I've been in the in the audience just looking around while one of my plays is being performed and it's just it's great, you know, you see people smiling, laughing or whatever. And I pretty much stuck to comedies. So, yep, and since then it's gone pretty well. I've had plays produced kind of around the country, one in Canada, and it's mostly been um short plays. I still got to try and crack into that full-length play genre. That's a whole different game. Well, that's amazing and really really cool you are an international playwright well you you hit canada that's another country that's international i did hit canada it was ottawa <laughs> okay um, <laughs> that counts that's that's the capital and you know uh speaking of canada you know this reminds me uh having you on as a guest um years ago i read this very interesting book called ancient canada have you ever heard of this book al I have heard of it. I have a copy of it on my shelf. And I know the author. It's Clinton Festa. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, it was uh, <laughs> like, like, a, like a fantasy kind of novel. Uh, I remember it was, uh, it was a fun novel. Well, thank you. It's a fantasy. It's, a, it's an alternate Canada. So it does not look at the actual history or the actual mythology of Canada. It's an alternate Arctic Circle with a purpose that we'll leave it at that because, yeah, kind of has a lot to do with where the story is going and where it ends. But the original publisher got bought out by a new publisher. So it's now with CamCat Books. And um, they have a really good team at CamCat helped me with editing. Because the first round, probably the one you read, could have used some trimming. So we got some editing down and, uh, you know, uh, but it's out there. CamCat Books for anybody who's interested. Ah, a director's cut. Ah, very, very interesting. Yes. <laughs> All right. Very nice. One of the cool things was over the pandemic when some not so cool stuff was happening, people were sidelined and actors were just, you know, there's no stage. So I sure. um, had a chance to cast and record a seven episode comedy fantasy podcast called The Malone Family in the Enchanted Forest, which is something that I think came out really good because we got really good actors. When you put out a casting call in a pandemic, which this we're talking January 2021, just a couple months before the vaccine was available for mostly everybody. I mean, I got some sidelined actors that were just absolutely phenomenal. And it was a big wow. cast. My goal was to get as many people involved as possible. 
So we had over 20 regulars and all in all, it was like 38 plus people that at least had some kind of role and uh, put together a podcast with great special effects. And it's it's out there. It's seven episodes. The Malone Family and the Enchanted Forest. It was a lot of fun to do and a good time to be able to do a podcast because we all recorded separately. We're all stayed at home and just met on Zoom to rehearse and record it individually. That's awesome. And it's on Spotify and Apple and Google and all the places. Yeah, you can't miss it. It's out there. Okay. All right. And I'll post a link to it as well to our socials at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So our listeners can check that out. That is very, very cool. And I've said this before, but during COVID, when everything was crazy, as weird as it sounds, doing this podcast helped keep me sane. It was a regular normal thing that we had done in the before times and we kept on doing it and i really found that it helped me it helped like center me or something i know how cheesy that sounds but like it was a really really positive thing yeah you're meeting with friends you're getting a chance to get some social element yeah you're doing something creative you're doing something where you can kind of forget about the pandemic for a bit and when the dust cleared we actually had an outdoor cast party in like september of 2021 and one of the main actors said to me it was the most fun he had to that point during the pandemic and that you know we all just had a great time together we had so much fun rehearsing and and recording and everything like that so it was a good outlet and I'm, I'm really glad we did it it was a good big group effort huge group that's really really cool that is a very very cool story okay so let's talk about conan the barbarian When we were talking at first about, you know, you coming on the podcast, you were talking maybe about doing Some Like It Hot, and I tried to convince you to come on to do Dirty Work, the Norm MacDonald movie, uh, (laughs) because I'm a sucker for movie anniversaries, and that one has its 25th anniversary coming up. But you were into Conan the Barbarian, and I was a little surprised that that was your pick. So why did you want to talk about this particular movie, Clint? Yeah, that's a good question because knowing each other so long, you probably thought, oh, that came out of left field, didn't it? Exactly, (laughs) yeah. Okay, so I was with my kids. You know, I got a a son and a daughter and a couple nieces and a nephew. So we were uh, at the movies in November and we were seeing Wakanda Forever. And there was a preview for Conan the Barbarian 40th anniversary. It was a re-release through um, the... uh, that that group that does re-releases. Okay. <laughs> anyway, it was a 40th anniversary from this movie that came out in 1982. And as soon as the preview ended, my daughter, who's sitting right next to me, says, I want to see that. And I said, what? <laughs> oh, my gosh. You want to see that? I'm definitely taking you to that. My son was like, no, thanks. That's cool. <laughs> um, you know, she's in seventh grade. She was into it. So we got our tickets. It was a two-day event only, a Monday and a Tuesday. And so there we go. We saw the movie and we saw it together. So I got to see her perspective. So when you're asking about, you know, the test of time, we have a seventh grader's opinion and she's not on with us because, you know, just because of the time we're recording here. But uh, she gave me some feedback and some thoughts and I can give you mine because keep in mind, we would have been what, three years old when this happened. Right. Um, And (laughs) the average person at the movie theater that night was i'd say had at least 10 or 15 years old on us oh okay because they were probably in their early 20s or maybe teenagers when they saw the movie 
And they were there with their sympathetic family members who were willing to see this movie with them. (laughs) (laughs) So, James, why don't you tell our listeners what the movie's about for anyone who hasn't seen it? Okay. This movie stars Arnold Schwarzenegger in the eponymous role of Conan, a young Sumerian who witnesses the murder of his family and tribe by a group of raiders led by the evil sorcerer Thulsa Doom. Conan is captured and enslaved, eventually becoming quite muscular as he grows older. He is eventually freed and befriends two thieves, Valeria and Sobatai. Together, they help Conan steal a priceless jewel, rescue a kidnapped princess, and get revenge against Thulsa Doom. Right. So when this movie came out, I assume it did decently at the box office because I know there's a sequel. Uh, yeah, I've seen everywhere from single digit budgets like 5 million to anywhere up to 20 million. And it opened on May 14th, 1982, to be exact. It opened at number one with 9.6 million, knocking a very famous, but uh, no one talks about it today, uh, but famous at the time, sex comedy off of its number one perch. Uh, what do you think that was, Al? Wait, I have a guess. Clint, do you, do you want to take a guess? Porky's? That's correct. Yeah, that, that's that's it? that's what it was. Yeah, Porky's. Okay. Um, yeah. It was number one the next weekend. Beating this movie, I wonder if you've ever heard of it, Al. It's a movie called Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. You ever heard of that? No. It's apparently a Steve Martin film. And also beat the uh, debut of Mad Max, uh, The Road Warrior, the uh, sequel of the Mad Max. So that's a very famous film from 1982. So this film wound up taking in uh, $39 million domestically, $69 million worldwide. And, uh, you know, this was the kind of thing that I had actually uh, never seen as a child. But uh, it was always on HBO or something like... I think this movie made a lot of money for the producers for many, many years. And yes, as you said, Al, it did spawn a uh, sequel, Conan the Destroyer, and eventually there was enough in this franchise to spawn a remake with uh, Jason Momoa a few years ago. Right, right. And I knew that Conan was like a character, IP, I guess you'd call it, but I was mistaken because I thought that like the video games and comic books and everything came from this movie. But that's not true. This character existed way, way before this movie. Clint, did you know of the character before you saw this movie? Yes, I did. Um, my in- original introduction to Conan actually was through this movie because I would go to my grandmother's house and uh, they would be on TV. And I remember the turbine scene where he got his muscles. I was like, oh, that's where he got his muscles. <laughs> and then, um, you know, I remember the very end, him sitting on a throne and they were saying, OK, he's, he's became king by his own hand. I'm like, that's it. That's a weird ending. <laughs> so I, I would I would see this movie, but it was very kind of compelling because of the whole tone of the movie and the whole, you know, mysterious story world behind it. Then I kind of forgot about it. And I think kind of, you know, we're talking like 1989, 1990, 91, maybe when this was happening, when I was seeing this on WPIX New York or something. Right. Um, with many things edited out. You know, I kind of suspect in hindsight that that might have been because of the popularity of Arnold Schwarzenegger's other movies like Terminator 2 or whatever was out at the time. You know, they're bringing us back to early Arnold. but. Then there was a cartoon that came out called Conan the Adventurer, which was one of my favorite cartoons growing up. Oh. Uh, with, you know, all sorts of additives like the, the sassy baby phoenix needle. Needle love pomegranate, that kind of stuff. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. That was the catchphrase? 
Yeah, Needle loves pomegranates. He's a stubborn little baby <laughs> phoenix that is supposed to guide Conan. And if you feed him a pomegranate, you can get him to do anything. It was a good cartoon. I loved it. That's such a stupid catchphrase. Yeah, yeah it was, well, it, it wasn't taken. <laughs> I guess. I guess that's how they came up with it. But the, I guess I guess the, the point is there's been a lot of permutations. And the original was a guy named Robert Howard in 1931 or thereabouts. I mean, we're talking as old as Superman here. And uh, he came out with a printed text version, uh, you know, in Strange Tales, was it? Or Weird Tales. It, it, he, he was a writer. And Conan goes back almost 100 years now. But it got rebooted in the 70s as a very successful comic book to the point where, I don't know if you guys remember, there is um, a moment in the uh, Obama election where they asked him what his favorite comic book characters growing up were. And he said Spider-Man and Conan. And Really? And, and everybody tries to read into that. So assuming you believe that that was just an honest answer and not some kind of, well, what's the right answer? Because I'm a politician. I got to give the right answer. It's still a bit of a bold answer because Conan in the comic book is like Conan in this movie, not like in the cartoon I watched. Um, I assume like the Robert Howard novels, which I have not read, you know, he's brutal. And um, to me, that says that Obama was a kid of the 70s because Conan the Barbarian, the comic, was very successful and popular in the 1970s. And not only that, like the original writer... Roy Thomas uh, was winning all sorts of like writing awards at the time for his work on Conan. So many forums Conan has been in. My introduction to Conan the Barbarian, yeah, I'd heard of the uh, you know Arnold movie. I'd never seen it as a kid. But one day when my family and I, when we were walking in Nyack, New York, which is where I grew up, there was a comic book store, and uh, this is the 80s, and my father thought that this was the most ridiculous and stupidest <laughs> thing he had ever seen. It was Conan the Barbarian, volume one, uh, issue number 108, and he bought it. And it has this, you know, this huge, muscular, kind of a, uh, he has blue hair, you know, kind of the blue hair like Superman has yeah. in, in the comics, not really blue, but black blue. Um, and he's hugely muscle-bound, kind of like a huge muscle-bound Tarzan. He's got this woman over his shoulders and a sword in the other hand. And the caption is this woman, the damsel in distress. Uh, and she's screaming, it's no use, Conan. Even you can't outrun the devourers of Darfar. <laughs> and just my father just made fun of this thing. Like, what is this? You know, this is back then when comic books were stupid and, you know, of all crap and whatever. <laughs> and he bought it. It was just kind of like a, a joke in, in our house for years. Uh, just Conan the Barbarian. It just became devourers of Darfar. <laughs> there are many moments, I think, in, in the movie of just silliness where he's such a brooding psychological basket case you know he's not like riddled with self-doubt or he doesn't have the um, psychological issues that we tend to focus on today he's more of a quick-tempered almost sociopathic but in a world where society cannot be trusted murdering sometimes defends the little guy he's not superman he you know he he, he doesn't like fight for truth justice in the american way he lives in a world where it's just sort of like blood and meat and who can steal the jewels. And, and that's his age. So, I mean, like 
it's all kind of made up. Robert Howard came up with this uh, Hyborian age with all of these made up locations. So when we say Sumerian, we're not talking about Sumer, S-U-M-E-R. We're talking about C-I-M-M-E-R, which is made up. So yeah, there's like a lot of pagan elements, but it's not, oh, we're going to have a trip through actual history here. Right, right. I remember when Game of Thrones was kind of becoming popular and some people who hadn't watched it would ask questions about it and they'd say like, so it's like in medieval times, is that right? It's like, no, because there's dragons and magic and stuff like that. So it's not like it takes place in the past of the real world. It's just a fictional universe. You have to suspend all belief. There's no actual history, geography, geology, any of that stuff. It's all fiction. People try to do that with everything, even like Homer, the Odyssey. They're like, okay, I figured it out. This was Odysseus's route through the Mediterranean. He went here and this is what this island really was. And it's just stop. You know, it's interesting you guys say that this is not based on anything specifically historical, but the Sumerians, these were a tribe actually that was named after uh, a tribe that was in the Assyrian Empire. These guys were around from like 1400 to 600 BC. These guys are the worst of the worst. Uh, this one king, uh, Asher Nasserpal, this guy used to talk about filleting people and he would make pyramids of heads after the uh, battles, their chariots would go and there's just rivers of blood killing the men, the women, the children, burning them alive. And of course, there's fantasy in here, but in a weird way, I, I found it kind of fascinating that this movie kind of went there ways that I don't think films today would do in terms of uh, violence and uh, rape and, you know, just pillaging of villages. And there's a lot of blood in this film, more than I would expect for 1982. If you're in 2023 judging this movie and and you say, oh, it's so violent, so this and so that, it's like, yeah, it's set in like what? This mythical time period Whereas they say between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, whatever that means, <laughs> it's kind of like, yeah, all right, long time ago, 8,000, 10,000 years ago, whatever it is, kind of keep that context in mind when, when you're watching this movie, just because you're not going to get a civilized, modern sensibilities kind of take to it. And in some ways, that's part of, I think, the fantasy. And that's the first thing you do when you're studying this stuff academically. You always got to say, you need to see uh, 20th century BCE, not from 21st century CE. Right. <laughs> you know, there's certainly bad people in this film that you can't say, oh, that's ancient. That, that, that's fine. No, they're still bad. They're still bad. But, um, it, you know, it doesn't mean like in a modern sense that you have to be, you know, Superman where you're basically a quote unquote Boy Scout. Conan the Barbarian does not have to be someone who uh, in... Uh, in the 21st century is, uh, you know, a great guy. And that's that's one thing. It's like the movie shows why he becomes that way because of the, the, the horrible stuff he experiences as a kid and he's forced into becoming a pit gladiator and, and he has to survive. It's not necessarily an endorsement of that. Like if you're watching this movie thinking to yourself, well, I don't, I don't like how it portrays violence or whatever. It's like, I don't think that this movie is endorsing that. I think this mo- movie is... Just showing it and, uh, you know, there's moments where they take it to a silliness level 
it's it's comedy. It's like comedy relief. I think probably the most famous quote. You guys remember the quote? What is best in life? That part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's hilarious. Is it? You know, he has the whole the whole horde. What's best in life? And one guy says, "The open step, a fleet horse, falcons on your wrist, and the wind in your hair." And the chieftain's like, "Wrong, Conan. What is best in life?" And he says, "Got to do the accent, right? To crush your enemies, to see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentations of the women." And the guy says, the chieftain says, "That is good." <laughs> so that's so over the top. I mean, we're not really endorsing that. We're not really saying that there's anything good about that. Like, that's just the story world. That's what Conan's learned. We don't agree with that. That's why it's comical. Oh, I mean, the, the movie is called Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. I, I hear what you're saying, but the rape in this movie, that just made my skin crawl. And yes, he's a barbarian. So, of course, he's going to act barbaric, but there is no reason for that to be in the movie. What What rape are you talking about? When they bring the woman to Conan, when he's like yeah. enslaved, the woman is like trembling with fear. And the first thing Conan does is he wraps her in like a, a sheepskin or something because she's nervous and naked and he's like comforting her. And I was like, oh, OK, so they give him this woman to rape and he's not going to do it. But then, no, he rapes her. I was like, what's the point of that? Like, why does he do that? That was breeding. They were breeding him with her. Oh, did they say that? Like yeah. in voiceover or something? Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not going to condone this, but um, to con- contextualize it somewhat, the narrator played by Mako, who turns out to be the wizard that we meet when he gets a little further east, he says, "They bred my lord to the finest stock." Meaning, oh, okay. I think that this was a world where they took this gladiator, this guy full of muscle, and now she was not there willingly right but he was still at that point a slave so i think like i don't know that either of them had a choice i I didn't see him resisting but he was an animal he was treated like an ox you know whatever if the point of that scene was to show that they were breeding then there should have been a kid there's no point they could have done that better. You're absolutely right. The movie doesn't need it. I haven't seen the Jason Momoa remake. I would put money on the fact that that Conan doesn't rape anyone. I bet you're right. <laughs> Almost certainly not. Um, my daughter noticed something in this film that I kind of forgot to maybe screen a little bit better. What's that? She said, there's a lot of boobs in this movie. And mm-hmm. um, she's right. And I said, oh, okay, sorry about that. And she said, well, it was the 80s. They only had boobs in the 80s, I, I, I no other so. decade. So then I'm watching it just a couple of days ago, because this is December that I saw it with my daughter. I'm watching it just so I can you know, kind of make sure I remember it well enough to talk about tonight. And I'm watching it. My son goes by and same thing. There's some boobs. So I said, sorry about that. And he said, eh, it was the 80s. Same reaction. <laughs> and that, that really got me thinking. You know, I, I was three in 1982, but I was like, Is that like a thing that all the kids but me know about? That in the 80s, there was just more unnecessary gratuitous nudity? Yeah, I mean, I've talked about this on the podcast. I think it really has to do with the rise of the internet. And basically, anyone can get their pornography where they want to in the privacy of their home if they choose to do that. But in the 80s, you would have to get videotapes, which was an effort. And if you were a kid, you didn't have access to this. And in the 70s, 60s, you had to go to special theaters. You know, sometimes in a movie like a Lethal Weapon film, you know, that's going to be on HBO. 
HBO. Anyone can have that film. There's going to be some boobs in that film. So, uh, you know, sometimes it's gratuitous, sometimes not. You know, you have your American Pie and your Porkies and the quote-unquote sex comedies. And sometimes I think they kind of worked it in. But I think you see a lot less nudity unless it's really pertinent to the plot in a film. You know, unless they're going for the, you know, teen sex comedy thing. Because I just don't think people in an action film want to see a sex scene. Like, I don't know if you remember this. Uh, I don't know if the last time you've seen it, but Terminator 1 has a lot of boobs in it. Linda Hamilton, there's a really long sex scene with her. You know, it's important to the plot because this is important how, you know, their love makes John Connor. But they didn't have to show her boobs, but you did in 1984, maybe. Uh, Porky's, which you mentioned before, that has a lot of gratuitous nudity. (laughs) Not just boobs, by the way. We'll do that on the podcast someday. So, Clint, I want to go back to something you mentioned a, a while ago, which was the uh, the torture device that Conan used where he yeah. becomes muscular. <laughs> so I, I wanted to ask you about that specifically because back in college, I don't want to embarrass you, but you were extraordinarily fit. Like you were like probably the most fit guy that I knew and you Still are, I assume. I can't really see your whole body in this little Google Meet window that I've got going on here. Yeah, not really. (laughs) I got kids now, but thanks. (laughs) Right, sure. We're in our 40s. But the implication in the movie is that Arnold becomes Arnold, this huge rippling guy with muscles on muscles on muscles by pushing this wheel around and around for years. And that's... BS, right? Like there's no way that from doing that one motion, you would get that level of Arnold Schwarzenegger definition, right? I loved it from a storytelling perspective because as a kid, I saw that and I totally was like, oh, that's how he got his muscles, right? You know, but like if I were a physical trainer, right? (laughs) no way, no way. You'd say, okay, do that for 20 minutes right? if you want. That's your psycho crossfit for the day if you want to call it that exactly it's not going to make the arnold schwarzenegger mr universe like perfectly defined from everything from uh, you know the the calves to the uh, you know the the shoulders but i thought it was an interesting way to depict his herculean transformation me too and it would hit a lot of muscle groups but it would also just (laughs) you'd probably have no achilles tendon left by the end by the time you're done right you'd have calluses all over your feet and hands you'd probably just have like some horrible sciatic nerve issues. I mean, you'd wear yourself down. My question still remains, what was that doing? Was that like some really stale piece of corn that they were trying to grind in a mill or something like that? Like, what was the work that was actually being accomplished? Because he was a slave at that point. I don't think there was any function to that. (laughs) I, I, I really think, you know, had they had this guy hauling rocks for 20 years, he probably alone could have built them an impenetrable stone fort. You know, Castle himself. But they had him spinning it for years. That that was stupid. Maybe they were just coming up with their next generation of gladiators. It just seems like in a world where Mm. food is hard to come by, they would take a lot of calories to feed that person. Exactly. I, I was thinking about that, you know, where it's like, yeah, he's pushing the thing around and around and around and maybe that'll build some muscle. But like... What's his nutrition? What's his protein intake? (laughs) You know, like what's he doing for hydration? What's his pre-workout regimen? These are important questions I have. I liked it. I think it was very much a comic book moment. But even even then, I I have read some of the old uh, Conan uh, comics. And the story is he was just born on the battlefield 
it's different. There's a different origin story. And if you, you know, if you actually look at Conan number one from 1970, he just jumps into a battle he has nothing to do with and wants to be a mercenary. He's just sort of like spawns from violence almost naturally. It doesn't have the same origin story as the movie. I actually like the origin story in the movie a lot better. But but I guess when you're writing a comic book and starting a new comic book line, you got to cut to the chase, right? you got to get to the action on like page one. That makes sense. And no one is seeing this film except to see Arnold Schwarzenegger at this time. You know, there's a great supporting cast, but Arnold was the draw. Get to the point. Uh, we don't want to see 30 minutes of this kid's journey to being Arnold. Right. And there's a lot of posing. So, you know, there's Arnold moving his body around, showing off his lats, posing with a sword, doing absolutely nothing meaningful. And that's fine because... I mean, let's be honest, it's like pretty darn impressive. (laughs) It's the exact same thing they're going to do in the opening of Commando. And they're going to do the same thing in the opening of Terminator 1 and Terminator 2. Just long shots of this guy's muscles. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger back then was, you know, he was the synonymous with strong. Like kids our age would say, like... Is he as strong as an Arch Schwarzenegger? You know, they casted him not for his acting ability, but no. because he won Mr. Olympia, uh, Mr. Universe, like so many times. Seven times in a row, something like that. And in, assuming you count bodybuilding as a sport, you have to consider him one of the greatest athletes, certainly in his sport. I mean, strength is kind of, a, I think, a different thing when you're talking um, bodybuilding because the people that go for like, you know, the, the actual numbers of how many kilograms or whatever they can lift. That's like a little bit different, but as far as like the sport of bodybuilding and coming up with a symmetry and everything like that, he completely dominated. And he was in another movie called Pumping Iron, where there's just such a funny scene where he's he's in the hotel before the competition, and it's like this sort of documentary, I guess. And Lou Ferrigno is like young, and he's like the next generation, Arnold's towards the end of his bodybuilding career. He switches the hotel room so that he and Lou Ferrigno are staying in the same hotel room. And then apparently, like, the night before the competition, he's like, okay, well, the time difference in Austria, where my mom is, I can't really call her tomorrow, so I'm just going to call her tonight and tell her I already won the competition. (laughs) (laughs) And he did go ahead and win the competition, and Lou Frigno maybe came in second or something like that. But as far as, like, being to that level, they had him down for Conan before they even like were fully ready to make the movie. And it was not based on acting because he was nominated for a Razzie because he says things like, I seek a standard, two snakes. <laughs> he is surrounded by good acting though. It is really, really noticeable how little he speaks. I think I read something yeah. where if you printed all of his lines in this movie, it's like two pages. He does not yeah. have a lot of dialogue. It's like 20-something minutes into the movie before he says anything. I think his first line might be like the, the lamentations of their women. Like In the last <laughs> like third of the movie, he doesn't speak. And other people speak to him when... Tulsa Doom, who's played by James Earl Jones, he gives like a long monologue about why he is so evil. And it just like cuts to reaction shots of Conan where he's just like, "Mm mm-hmm, yup. And like Valeria is like expressing her love for him and she gives this long soliloquy about their love and their passion. And he's just like, "Mm mm-hmm. And I didn't read the, the old Conan 
books, novels, poems, whatever. Apparently, <laughs> from the very little Wikipedia research I did today, apparently that Conan was a very witty person. He spoke a lot. He was funny. He was, you know, somewhat verbose. And in this movie, he ain't. And it kind of makes sense in universe because he's a barbarian. But you can also kind of see the seams of they don't trust this guy to talk much. Yeah, you can. And there's actually a funny scene, I think. <laughs> Spoiler alert. When Valeria dies and they're they're doing the funeral pyre and um, the wizard says to Subutai, why do you cry? And he says, uh, Conan, he is a Sumerian. He won't cry, so I cry for him. And I'm thinking like, you mean you're an actor, so you're going to cry. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, 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 right. They also give her like a whole death scene, you know, where she gets to be dramatic yeah. and, and like really milk the death scene. And he's just sitting there staring. And then it's very convenient that they're like, oh, he's a Sumerian. So obviously he doesn't cry, which means nothing <laughs> to the audience because these Sumerians are completely made up. Right. Everyone knows Sumerians don't cry. You know, there, there's a famous song by The Cure about that, I think, right? Like, come yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I do want to delve a little bit into the relationship between Conan and Valeria because their relationship is non-existent on screen, right? Like they, they meet and there's like a little bit of flirting and then all of a sudden, you know, she is the love of his life. And I get it that no one went to see this movie to see a love story. That was not on the minds of the, the big hulking guys that were paying money to see it. But I thought it was a little eye roll worthy. Also, their sex scene, they just like roll over on top of each other like three times. Like that's their only move. It's like she's on top. Oh, roll over. He's on top. And then roll over. Now she's on top. It was just like back and forth over and over again. I thought the relationship was fine. Valeria, she can kick ass and she's an absolute equal to Conan. And he sees her as like, wow, I mean, not only are you beautiful, uh, you know, but you kick fucking ass. And I, I thought that uh, the actress that played her, I, I thought uh, uh, Sandal Bergman, I thought she was awesome in the role. I thought she really she kicked was. ass. I I liked her. I was sad she, she died. I knew somebody was going to die in the scene because, uh, yeah, you see James Earl Jones' character, uh, you know, uh, put an arrow in and he's going to kill one of them. I was kind of hoping it was the other guy, but, uh, you know, her dying made a little more sense uh, plot wise. She didn't do anything superhuman. She was just kind of awesome. Well, I think like the currency of their relationship is kind of the currency of their world. She talks about warmth and when she dies, she talks about how she's cold. And that's a lot of like the speech you were talking about. And, uh, you know, Conan's, he's got to follow his revenge or whatever. And that's kind of a big part of it. Um, she basically has become a thief because of a similar upbringing that he had. Yeah, they come together to, to steal that the jewel, the eye of the serpent. So, so great. They kind of get rich together, and then they don't really know where their life is going to go next. But as far as like the commodities, I think that they have in this crazy mythical world are, you know, jewels, warmth, and loyalty is also just really rare. So I think they kind of get that from each other. And Conan, when he he leaves, because she doesn't want to go after Tulsa Doom for revenge, you know, and, and he's he's going to go do it. He leaves her with the, the jewel because, you know, he doesn't want to just leave her in the cold. He cares. But that's kind of like the language I think they're talking when, when they go through their steps of their love story. I mean, she does the ultimate. She does what he can't do. She dies. She, she kind of like takes on his death because 
she has just another, I think, level of worthiness. Right. He's worried that if he has to go in front of Krom, he's not going to be accepted in Valhalla because he's not going to be good enough. And she comes back very clearly, briefly, but very clearly accepted into Valhalla. Just by the way she's dressed and sparkling, you can tell. I mean, they do some of the Nordic thing with that. She made it. Like, she she has a certain, like, have a higher level, I think, of worthiness that he's going to strive for, but he has a different path. His destiny is not to die in battle. He's going to become a king. Right, right. And, you know, there is a frustrating trope in certain movies. People criticize the Marvel movies for this, that, like, the female characters have one function, quite often, not always, but their function is to kind of love the other character, then die. Like, they have to do the sacrifice. Who who sacrifices themselves? The woman. Not always. There are male characters that do it, too. But it is a little bit of a trope. It makes sense in this movie because, you know, when they bring Conan back from death, the wizard says, the spirits will exact a heavy toll. And Valeria right. says, I will pay it. So then she pays yep. it. You know, like, it connects. There's an A to a B to a C. Uh, I'm trying to scan in my mind all of the Marvel films. I can't remember a story where a woman has to die to to sacrifice herself, except for one thing at the very end of the Infinity story. What, what, what character are you talking about? Unless I'm missing some. Black Widow. Right, that, that's what I'm talking about. That's the one character I was talking about. I mean, maybe you mean other films. I was just wondering specifically Marvel. I, I don't know if you've seen all of them, and I'm afraid to say a spoiler and you have you get mad at me. Uh, I have not seen anything past, uh, what was uh, the Doctor Strange? Multiverse of Madness? Yeah, I saw that one. Okay, Scarlet Witch. She dies? She's the bad guy for the whole movie, and then she dies sacrificing herself. Oh, you know what? I, I don't really even think that she died. That Oh, I, I even like, forgot that she died. Oh. But like, it's one of those like comic book deaths. Like, eh, multiverse, she's not really dead. Probably. So, eh, you know, she's as dead as Superman was in Batman vs. Superman. Fine, <laughs> yeah. fine. Um, I want to ask you guys about some of the special effects in this film. Uh, a lot of practical effects, obviously no CGI, but, um, you know, a couple things. There's uh, the snakes. Uh, there's a scene with the, the spirits coming for Conan's body. Uh, there's also a lot of use of these uh, wide shots when they're approaching the huge temples and uh, in the mountains, and they use something called uh, foreground miniatures. And uh, I personally thought the foreground miniatures they did to a very good effect. But I was wondering what you guys thought of uh, you know some of the other special effects in the film. When I saw the movie in uh, December, I, I said there's there's really three scenes that I think you know might have been good for the time, but I thought they came off a little bit like jarring. So uh, my daughter. Uh, very first scene with dialogue, because it opens up with them forging a sword, which makes sense. But the very first scene with dialogue on the mountaintop when the Conan's father is talking to him, first words out of my daughter's mouth were, green screen. <laughs> <laughs> so it is. The sky in the background is not there. So so I was like, okay, I hope we're not in for a long one here. <laughs> so and another one was when Tulsa Doom's head morphs into a snake. I mean, it's okay, but it's like you could tell that was 40 years ago. And then the, the demons that are circling around Conan that they have to fight off, that Valeria basically fight, fights off. So I left the movie thinking, okay, three things that maybe were good at the time, but I think you, you really like, wow, that, that's a little dated. And then I watched it a couple of days ago. And I had my list of three, and I kept crossing out. Okay, so there's four scenes. 
Yeah, then there's that bird, that vulture, pecking at him while he's on a tree of woe. That's pretty fake. We're up to five scenes. And then, you know, I just kind of kept adding. I was like, all right, I'm going to stop keeping track. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you personally, um, I have a big fear of snakes, but I found the snake scene terrifying. I thought the snake was actually a very good uh, special effect, not the snake that uh, Bills of Doom turns into. I'm talking about just the snake's eye. I thought it looked like, uh, you know, terrifying snake's eye. I agree. And for a practical effect i thought that was very good and he stabs it with a sword i thought i i was still scared while he was stabbing it i was like eh, it's gonna wrap itself around you it's terrifying i'm with you there that was not on my list of what i thought didn't work well especially because of the way the snake's eye dilated when it saw conan i was like well that's that's cool right um and, and when he straightens out the snake and arnold picks up an actual snake and tosses it i'm like that pretty convincing um, but the Tulsa Doom's head turning into a snake was the one I thought was like, mm, okay. See, I read something that said that that effect was like brilliant when Tulsa Doom turns into the snake. And I was like, was it? Because I don't remember it being brilliant. So I went back and rewatched it and it's really, really quick. It's just like a James Earl Jones kind of mask that like yeah. expands for. I'm going to say a second to max. Then there's a close up on the hands going into the sleeves and then it's a snake. You don't see very much at all. And, you know, right. the, the one thing that I read of like this effect was groundbreaking and revolutionary and the most impressive effect in the movie. I was like, if that's the most impressive effect in the movie, that's not saying much. And I think it might actually be the most impressive effect in the movie because the, the demons I thought were laughable. The snake, yeah, sorry, yeah. James, I thought that was laughable. The crow on the tree of woe, yeah, I was like, come on. This looks like a <laughs> like a Chuck E. Cheese animatronic kind of a thing. I thought I it all it. looked pretty <laughs> bad. But that uh, you know kind of wraps up a lot of what we want to talk about. So I, I want to ask you, Clint, uh, do you think that 1982's Conan the Barbarian stands the test of time? Um, I think there is a little bit of a mixture here. One thing we haven't talked about is the music. The music is absolutely fantastic. And I was a little upset to find out that it was not even nominated for an Oscar, but it was nominated for some other stuff, and it did age well. Basil Apollodorus, I think. I think overall, yes. My final answer is going to be yes, because when you're watching this movie straight through, I don't think it really suffers from pacing issues. I don't think there's any sort of like, oh, this is an old, boring movie or anything like that. Some of the special effects are a little cheesy. You can always talk about some of the social connotations about this hyperborean, hyperbiborean age. Honestly, I think it probably suffered for that in its own time because you could criticize it in 1982 as much as you could today, probably more then. So some of the social elements are uh, not great, but as far as aging is concerned, I don't know that they're any different. Uh, overall, I loved rewatching it. Um, a few special effects issues, but you kind of probably just have to get over that for for any movie that's 40 years old. Uh, Yeah, I think Conan the Barbarian stands the test of time. All right, um, Al, uh, what do you think? Does the movie stand up? Clint, I got to disagree with you on the pacing thing. I found it to be really, really slow. After Conan meets Subotai, they walk a lot. 
and they go to like this one village and not much happens. Then they go to this other village and then there's not much happening. And then they go to another village and then like Conan gets drunk and starts yelling at the women. He punches a camel, which by the way, (laughs) apparently that really happened because there was some humane society aspca some kind of organization that was like appalled at the conditions on set of this movie like the real life conditions and one of their complaints was that someone struck a camel and i was like is that what you see in the movie i rewound that scene because i was like whoa 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 it looks like that was a real camel he really hit him because you can't get a camel to dive down like that for nothing and i rewound it i was like I'm going to go with they got me. That was really good special effects because I don't want to believe he actually hit a camel. But you might be right there. (laughs) I don't know it for a fact, but just from what I read online today, apparently there was a complaint that someone from some organization saw someone strike a camel. So, you know, this movie doesn't get the no animals were harmed in the making of this motion picture tagline because someone, probably Arnold, punched a camel. That would make this the second film that does not get the uh, No Animals Were Harmed in the Making. Second movie ever? No, that we've reviewed, Al. Oh, I don't know. What was it? Milo and Otis? No, it was actually The Naked Gun. And they talk about how many animals they ate during the uh, (laughs) filming. And there were one or two species that, because of the filming crew, went extinct (laughs) during the filming of The Naked Gun. But I think that was a joke. I'm pretty sure. Yes, I'm pretty sure. They probably had the actual, though, animals were hard. Wasn't there something about a moose in the opening, like, credits of the Holy Grail? Something about a moose. Maybe. (laughs) It's been a while since I've seen that one. I do think that there are some pacing issues. Even at the end, like, when there's the big climactic battle with Thulsa Doom, there are actually, like, three climactic battles with Thulsa Doom. And, like, they go into his lair, and their whole plan is to, like, sneak in undetected and then they interrupt an orgy and like i would think you don't interrupt the orgy i would think you wait till after the orgy when everyone's real sleepy and then you go in and rescue the princess don't do it mid orgy but then there's another climactic battle you know in the desert and then there's another one where he has to go back and even though Thulsa Doom can turn into a snake sometimes he just kind of stands there and lets Conan decapitate him by the end of this movie I was bored quite frankly and I shouldn't have been bored because it's a, a sword and sorcery movie with action and adventure and beheadings and stuff i kind of found it to be tedious i found it to be a little bit confusing the whole thing with that wheel of pain in the beginning i thought that he was with thulsa doom's people but then later when he's going to find thulsa doom i was like well he knows where he lives because they captured him in the very beginning made him push the spinny wheel around forever till he grew all of his muscles magically He knows where they are, but I guess not. Maybe he was sold to some other raiders or something. He was sold. Yeah, they sold him. Did they say that? I think the narrator said it pretty briefly. I was confused about that as well, actually. I thought maybe he was a slave of his army. Yeah, and, you know, there is voiceover in this movie, which does annoy me in general. And there is annoying voiceover in this movie where 
young Conan sees his parents die, his mother's beheaded in front of him, and then the voiceover says, his is a tale of sorrow. Like, yeah, thank you. Got it. Did, <laughs> did not need that line of VO to tell me that. Thank you very much. Show and tell. Right, right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's my whole thing with voiceover. As a playwright, you get it, Clint. Yep, show, don't tell. <laughs> uh, right, when there's like the montage of him fighting and like beating people up and he's like got this huge Arnold grin on his face. The voiceover says, he started to enjoy the fights. Like, yes, I can see that. Why are you telling me that? Um, I didn't love this movie. I rented the DVD from the library. It has the sequel on it. It's got both movies. I have zero interest in watching the second or the Jason Momoa remake, I don't think it stands the test of time. So, James, that makes you the tiebreaker. What do you think? Um, well, first, I'm going to agree with you, Al. I really have no interest in watching Conan the Destroyer or the Jason Momoa remake. Um, this is the first time I've seen this film in its entirety. I did try to see this film, I would say maybe... Uh, 15 years ago, and I got through the part in the beginning, the Wheel of Pain and Arnold becoming huge, and then I remember getting really bored of the film, and I just, like, turned it off or switched to HBO or something. I agree with Al also about the pacing of this film. It does not need to be two hours and six minutes long. I think films like this and 300 do uh, allow themselves for a voiceover. And this is one of those films like 300 that the voiceover is not a narrator. It's an actual character that's like, oh, I'm telling you the story and this is why I'm telling you the story. Like, it's meant to tell generations of the legend of King Conan, you know, eventually King Conan. So I was fine with that. Uh, Speaking of kings, I did not see the Jason Momoa remake, but a film that I did see once, I don't remember anything about it, but I did see The Scorpion King. That was a a vehicle for The Rock. Yes, Dwayne Johnson. And he was basically this strong, muscular guy in ancient ancient Near East, Middle East, and he did not have any of the negative qualities. Uh, You know, he was certainly a strong guy. He certainly killed a lot of people. But, um, you know, Al, when you're talking about, uh, you know, the the orgy story, um, you know, this to me, that really reminds me of uh, other story. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Dina from from the Bible. You know, there's the 12 sons of Jacob and there's one daughter, Dina. Basically, um, she's kidnapped by another tribe and she is... uh, brutally raped the brothers go to the tribe that raped dina and they said if you guys convert to our it's basically a brand new religion um we'll be okay with you guys so they go okay fine we'll we'll follow your god and they go ah but there's something we do in our religion and that is uh, uh circumcision so all of these you know barbarian 20 year old guys they all got circumcised and the bible story says and that night as they were kind of tending to their wounds, that's when the uh, brothers came in and slaughtered the entire tribe. So, you know, when you're saying, no, don't slaughter them in an orgy, it's kind of one of those like, 
dude, don't shoot him in the dick, <laughs> you know. But it's, it's from a strategic point of view. You know, Sun Tzu would say that's probably the best point to ever attack someone who usually has armor and a sword. You know, now they're not in the right mind and they have no armor, no sword, and yeah, he slaughters all of them. So from a barbarian point of view, I understand why he did that. From a, ooh, you know, guy point of view, that, that, that's cold. I agree with you, uh, Basil uh, Poladuris. Th- this guy is awesome. Uh, he did the themes for other films that we reviewed and I loved. Uh, he did the theme for RoboCop, uh, Starship Troopers. Uh, he did the theme for Free Willy, which we'll eventually do. Uh, he did the theme for Hunt for Red October. He won an Emmy for uh, the uh, theme for Lonesome Dove. I've never seen that. But uh, I thought that was fantastic. And kind of in a post-Game of Thrones world, I kind of was okay with the violence and, you know, just pity for these people that they live in this horrible world of uh, everything is death and everyone's dying and the life expectancy. Who could possibly live to have gray hair in these worlds? But um, I thought it was kind of interesting. The special effects were good enough. Like Clint said, you know, you have to take it with a grain of salt. Not everything could be 1977 Star Wars level effects. And, you know, overall, I found the film pretty fascinating but in a weird way i don't want to see any of the sequels or remakes so i think that the film stands the test of time when you understand it's conan the barbarian and not conan the scorpion king the good guy that got that's got muscles and saves the day nice you know there's gonna be a lot of bad things in this film but it was just entertaining to me that I do think it stands the test of time. But I totally see it from your point of view, Al. This is one of those films, like, you got to know what you're getting. There's going to be bad stuff in here, Game of Thrones-like. So I think it stands the test of time. I think it's an appropriate score that it should be a split uh, vote, honestly. I think it's a bit of a polarizing film. And I'm with you on the sequels. I don't really plan on seeing Conan the Destroyer, even though, yeah, you can tell I'm a Conan fan, but... I just haven't heard good things. And the 2011, eh, I don't know. Um, There's just one more thing I'd like to throw out there that I saw. The movie, when I saw it in the theater, had two opening, like, deleted scenes or something, which maybe you get with a DVD, I don't know. But Max Van Sydow plays King Osric. Yeah. He's great in it. He's in one scene. Middle of the story slash, it's it's almost like your climax, but it's your call to action at the same time. It's this odd turning point in the movie, but he does great with it. And he sends him off, please go find my daughter, that kind of thing. And they had this deleted scene where he gets stabbed and killed by his own men. It's a silent scene because they're acting it out with like the explosive blood packs. So you realize how loud those are. You know, you talk about stage plays and theater, you wouldn't have those. You'd have to have blood capsules that are silent. But there's this scene where he gets killed and you're thinking, I'm thinking to myself like, what in the heck scene was that? Where in the plot would that have gone? And the other one, which was really funny was that scene where they just cut Arnold loose and, you know, Conan, he starts running with his chains dangling on his, his feet and then just some wild dogs start chasing him. And he runs up to the rock and he gets safe by out climbing them. That was the other deleted scene we saw in the movie or as an outtake really where he kind of slips while he's climbing up the rock, because Arnold did most of his own stunts for this. And then the dogs are still going after him. And you hear him screaming, ah, damn it! You know, and then this guy in, like, normal 
modern clothing starts sprinting. You can see him coming on on screen, and he's like, "Stop, stop, stop, stop!" And he's trying to like call off his own dogs. Oh, jeez! I, I did read that with the animals, like the the thing with the camel. Apparently, the dogs were mistreated, and the dogs did really actually injure Arnold. They got pretty darn close. I don't know. I didn't see. They didn't let that play forever, but he slipped, and they were. They were coming. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and uh, I want to thank you for bringing up the late uh, Max von Sydow. Uh, he was a brilliant actor. People might know him. Uh, total coincidence. We've talked about it a lot, but he was in Game of Thrones. He was the three-eyed raven. Right. Do you know what film we uh, reviewed him in, Al? It was a Steven Spielberg film. A futuristic Steven Spielberg film. Oh, right. He was in Minority Report. Right. He's the director. He's director Burgess. Yes, yes. He's in another uh, uh, film we're definitely going to review someday. He's Emperor Ming in Flash Gordon. The last film that uh, I remember him being in, uh, it's actually one of his last credits, was uh, he is the very old man at the very beginning of Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens. Right. When he says in the movie, um, in Conan, there comes a time... When the jewels cease to sparkle, the gold loses its luster, when the throne room becomes a prison, and all that is left is a father's love for his child. And I'm sitting there watching the movie with my daughter, and I kind of give her a little elbow. I'm like, yeah, it's true. It's true, you know? <laughs> Could you hear her eyes rolling? Yeah, they squeaked. They make a squeaking noise because they're so dry from the number of times I've made her eyes roll. <laughs> Both of my kids' eyes squeak now when, when I say stuff like that. You know, anytime my kids roll their eyes at me, I'm like, oh, you accidentally rolled your eyes. What you meant to do was <laughs> laugh hysterically. But don't worry. I get it. I know what you were really going for, what your body was actually trying to do. Um, Just kind of random question. Do you think that anyone would give a shit about this movie if it didn't star Arnold Schwarzenegger? No. I kind of don't. What do you think, Clint? Um, in 1982, maybe, because of the popularity of the comic book throughout the decade of the 70s. Today, if that had not happened, probably not. But I think I think that they knew they needed to get Arnold because it's not like an audition process, right, for him? So they, they had him lined up, and I think their plan was, we're not making this without him. Right. I read a couple things where they said that exact thing that you just said, Clint, like they're not making the movie without him. Then I also read some things that the other guys that were like Thulsa Doom's henchmen, they were in the running for the part at one point by someone, maybe, who knows, maybe not. But like, I was just thinking in some multiverse, if there's a version where one of those guys stars as Conan the Barbarian... They're not having 40th anniversary screenings of this movie. No, you know, no, they're they're not. Those dudes were, uh, I think, professional bodybuilders themselves. Yeah. I think a lot of them were coming out because you know what, what are we doing here? We're, we're making a sword and sandal type, bronze skin kind of meat market ish, if you want. So, okay, that's part of it. That's part of what we're doing to sell tickets. Sure. Fair enough. And a lot of it is really selling tickets to like young guys who are like kind of you know not that right i mean it's your comic book crowd and that's cool but yeah those guys maybe if one of them had wound up in the in the role of conan you'd have possibly more trouble finding uh, a production company that wants to get behind it and i don't know that you'd make all of your money back so i think it would be relegated to maybe one of similar to one of those sword and sandal movies from the 60s which a lot of them were made um in europe and FYI, this was a Dino De Laurentiis film. Right. So 
that might be why it kind of all came together. But yeah, without Arnold, I don't think we'd be talking about this movie. Right. I would have picked something else. <laughs> there you go. Well, I hope you will pick something else and come back on the podcast again, because even though I did not love this movie, this conversation was a ton of fun. It was really great yeah. chatting with you, Clint. And uh, you you're, you're welcome to come back anytime. Well, thank you very much. I'd love to. It's a lot of fun on my end as well. I really appreciate you guys having me. And I would definitely love to do it again. So I'll just wait for my next turn. But in the meantime, I'll be thinking about what movie that might be. I'm going to aim for another split. How about that? I'm going to see if we can really get you split again. Because that, that's kind of part of the fun, I thought. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I hope you will listen to our Dirty Work episode because I am going to mention you, I'm sure. Because we used to quote that movie all the damn time. I, <laughs> I wouldn't miss it. You know, if, if you didn't mention me, that would hurt the most. Well... <laughs> Anyway, I'll <laughs> I understood that reference. Well, uh, thank you again, Clint. This has been so much fun. That's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we are going to be talking about The Little Mermaid in honor of the new live-action remake. We are going to look back at the 1989 animated Disney movie, The Little Mermaid. I am really excited to watch that movie again. I haven't seen it in years. My daughter's excited to watch it again. So come back and listen to that episode. In the meantime, we want to hear from you guys. We are at Tested Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Write to us about your thoughts on Conan and Barbarians and Cimmerians and Cinnaminians and Hibernians and Hibernabians and whatever kind of made-up word you want. It's fine. We'll pretend that it's a real thing. And uh, we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye.